Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, awesome conversation today. What were some of your highlights and who did we talk to? Yeah, we talked to Ariana Simpson of A16Z Crypto, who has had a particular focus, emphasis lately on the crypto gaming side of things, which is what we talked about today. And I think crypto gaming has an extreme amount of product market fit with, I think, the current crypto community. For some reason, Diablo 2 is like a shared cultural pastime of almost all of us in the crypto world. And I think we're all very, very stoked to see what comes out of a crypto gaming world, because I think we all believe that the games that come out of an asset powered game is going to be fundamentally different and I think much more rich and much more fun to play when there's economic assets that are part of the game itself. And so that is the topic of today's show. Absolutely. Crypto gaming is going to be massive. If you think about this, just in regular gaming, 60% of all Americans play some form of a game. Video game streaming reaches 1.2 billion viewers every year. Fortnite generates 5.1 billion in revenue. The whole industry is expected to surpass 300 billion. But you know what just happened this year? is Axie Infinity jumped on the radar. Now it has like 1.5 million players. It's reached a fully diluted market cap of $18 billion, right? So like crypto gaming is here. I think some of these early games have sort of proved this. And what we really wanted to go through with Ariana is like, why? Like, why, why is this suddenly happening now in crypto? And how does an investor see this? What's the lens? So we talk a lot about owning games or owning items in a game and these asset powered games and how important that is. We talked about the transition to this play to earn movement that we're seeing. We talked about employment via gaming and how that's going to shape culture. And finally, we talked about how this all ties into the metaverse and ultimately Ethereum and ETH the asset. And she had some really great takes all along the way. So if you are trying to figure out what the next big thing is in crypto gaming, this is an episode you're going to want to pay full attention to. Before we get to the conversation with Ariana, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your dApps all in one place. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. 
When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum Layer 2. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. Ariana Simpson is a general partner at A16Z in Dresden Horowitz, where she invests in crypto, particularly, and this is going to be important this episode, on the gaming side of things, all about crypto gaming. Prior to joining Andreessen, Ariana founded Autonomous Partners, which was an investment fund that focused on cryptocurrencies and digital assets. And she was recently just named to Fortune's 40 under 40. Ariana, congrats on that. And welcome to Bankless. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here. All right, guys, this is our crypto gaming episode. And I know your focus, your specialty is all about gaming more recently in crypto, that you've had extensive experience in the other sectors within crypto. And I want to set some context for Bankless listeners in terms of why we're talking about this. I think it's really because crypto gaming became a major force this year, right? Axie, 18 billion in fully diluted valuation, 18 billion with a B, 3 billion annualized revenue at one point in time. People are living off of video games. People are living off of Axie. At its peak, the game that was Axie was generating over 15 million in revenue per day, 1.5 million daily active users. So Axie has just like blasted the door off of this thing. Now everyone sees what's possible. We've got guilds and DAOs like YGG creating entire economies for employees. We have loot, which is absolutely blasting off. Now we have the advent of layer two. Guys, it feels like time to do a bankless podcast on crypto gaming. So I wanna start Ariana with this question to tee us up. Why are you so excited about crypto gaming and also, why now? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, if you look at the history of crypto, we've really spent the last few years building the core infrastructure that was necessary in order to start um, enabling some of the more consumer facing and application layer experiences, including games. And in order to support those games, first, we had to build some core infrastructure, whether that was layer one blockchains or scalability solutions or a number of other things. And so while that's certainly all still in progress and we're never really going to be done building things like that, um, we've now reached a level of kind of functionality where we can build things on top. And so I think the fact that um, you know, that's the point that we're at now is what's enabling a lot of these gaming and entertainment experiences, obviously, first and foremost, Axie, but the whole ecosystem around it, too, to really start to flourish. Um, and if you think about, you know, why this matters, I think the critical piece is crypto has always had a very high barrier to entry. It can be a little bit daunting. You have to be fairly technical. Um, and 
gaming, I think, occupies a really unique space in the sense that it's allowing people who might otherwise say, oh, I don't know how I would get into this. You know, what's a transaction? What's a hash? What's either scan? You know, all these things to start playing around with it in a way that's a lot more approachable and fun, frankly. And so what we're seeing is that it's really opening the floodgates for a whole universe of new crypto users. Um, and that to me is incredibly powerful because at the end of the day, if crypto is to realize the vision that we've all kind of hope for and been working towards over the last few years, it really needs to have mainstream appeal. And so games, I think, have opened that door and are bringing in users who were not sort of, they're net new users to crypto, I guess. And so once people come in, start playing games, see, you know, the fun, the potential economic upside, um, you know, uh, uh, the communities, so many positive things that can be found in these experiences, as people play around with it, um, you know, then they start to percolate out into other parts of the crypto ecosystem. And to me, that's, you know, that's the most exciting thing, because as a builder in the crypto space, what you really want is people to use your products and services that you're spending all this time building. Um, and so, you know, games are a really powerful engine for increasing the number of those users. Ariana, when you said that we've kind of already figured out this core infrastructure and we can now open up to more commercial applications, that actually is like starts to get my hair to stand up because it's been so long in crypto where we've been at this like infrastructure level and opening up the world towards the commercial layer is like something we've always been like saying, like hopefully this time will actually come where like crypto people will just become normal people. So with this, with this like new era in crypto where we are now getting into like the broad commercial applications, especially with gaming, how big of an unlock have we just met like with the unlock of crypto gaming? Like how big is this? I guess it's a question of total addressable market, but with the current size of crypto, at least with population versus what could be unlocked with gaming, What's like the comparative magnitude of these two different things? I mean, I think that TAM is nearly all people on the planet, which I know sounds crazy, but is actually very realistic in the sense that we're increasingly all online all the time across the world. Internet penetration obviously is continuing to rise like the 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 universe of people whose lives will be touched by crypto in some way, shape or form, um, I think is pretty much all people on the planet. Obviously, that's not, you know, yet today, but it's happening over time. Um, and I think when you start to think about, um, you know, enabling that, obviously, some of the issues we've seen on the infrastructure side are kind of a key gating factor. Um, the demand for throughput on blockchains has been rising at an incredibly fast clip. And I think if you look at, um, you know, how full are blocks on Ethereum as a proxy for that, obviously, uh, you know, we, we have a real issue there. Gas prices have been out of control, et cetera. And I think one very clear um, data point about the fact that demand is really actually very hard to forecast um, until you lower those transaction fees is what happened with Axie, as you mentioned, and moving over to the Ronin sidechain. So, um, you know, Axie had been doing fine, decent growth, whatever. Um, they they switched over to Ronin and the graph goes vertical. And I think, um, you know, that's a really interesting phenomenon because you can't you don't necessarily 
have a good measure for the demand that exists but isn't being captured until you lower those barriers to entry, bring down transaction costs, and just enable um, enable people to play a game or transact in a way that's costless or close to it. Um, and so, you know, I think what we're seeing is that there's so much interest in you know, interacting with crypto um, in a variety of ways. And so as the barriers to entry from an infrastructure perspective continue to fall, um, we just expect that the number of experiences that people are are able to have in crypto is going to continue to to grow um, at a super, super fast pace. I think this is a really like important point, right? And so like, I remember the Axie circumstance that you're talking about very well, like in 2019, and 2020, we were writing about Axie on Bankless, but it was like this niche game, super like esoteric. It was not mainstream at all. It was very sort of, you know, crypto uh, gaming in this very small niche. And um, when they did launch the Ronin sidechain, as you said, like that's when they were able to scale up to 1 million plus users and more. Now they have the yeah. largest Discord server, larger even than Fortnite. And that kind of surprised me. But like, I think people miss the point. Um, they look, it's kind of like cell phone adoption. You know, like 1980s, you had these brick cell phones. Only a few people had them. They'd have them in their car to be traveling. With it's a like, nice antenna on top. Oh, yeah. Exactly. It's like, like no one's going to have like cell phones, uh, was the thought at the time if they look like that. But when you like bring down the costs and when you make them more compact and you create a you know mainstream access for these things, now they're everywhere. Everyone yeah. has a phone. I mean, internet bandwidth is the same way. So it does really seem like layer two and uh, side chains and cheaper block space is a massive unlock for crypto gaming. And it feels like, um, I, I gotta say, even being in crypto, I don't know about you, Ariana, but like the Axie thing caught me by surprise. You know, I was just like, I was expecting slow incremental growth of the type we've seen over the last couple of years. But then, as you said, when they released, you know, their side chain, I don't know, earlier this year was like February or March, just absolutely insane level of adoption. That caught me by surprise. Did it, were you think, surprised at all about this? I think it caught this? everybody by surprise, really, okay. uh, including the team. Um, you know, uh, you, you can never, it's one of those things where, you know, 10 year overnight success kind of situation where, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for the team at Axie, the team at YGG, some of these teams that have been really grinding for years and years, um, building their vision of, you know, a, a crypto game ecosystem and the metaverse. Um, and for a long time, it was very unpopular. Um, you know, nobody crypto was down. Um, it wasn't obvious that any of these things were really going to take off. But, um, you know, kudos to the folks in that ecosystem who I think really helped each other get through the crypto winters and um, continued to build their vision, despite the fact that for a long time, there wasn't really much in the way of external validation. By the way, I think that's like a key story throughout the history of crypto. It's like, you know, we were myself included, honestly, everyone thought I was a lunatic to, to move into the space in 2013 when I did. But, um, you know, I think there's what inspires me about the space is really the fact that people have had such interesting and creative visions for how the tech can be applied um, and just continue to work and build against those ideas, um, even when it wasn't obvious um, or there wasn't really 
at least in the short term, any kind of obvious financial upside in doing so. Um, and so I'm always delighted when you know, when folks end up doing very well financially, because I, I feel they've been slogging, you know, for many years to, to build. And I think that's at the end of the day, kind of what what this is all about. Before we dive into the more intricate details about asset powered gaming, is there any other conversations around like the infrastructure improvements that have allowed this crypto gaming world to evolve, not just like scalability? Is there anything else that is like really important infrastructure to allow this sector of the crypto world to blossom? Well, you know, I think um, I think there have been a few different approaches to tackling some of these problems. Obviously, I think what um, the Dapper slash Flow team has done in building a blockchain that was really designed and optimized around gaming and entertainment use cases um, has been really powerful. And I've been very excited to see kind of what's happening in that ecosystem as well. Um, obviously, Polygon has also really taken off and is enabling a number of games that run runs on that a number of others. So, um, you know, I think there's th this problem is being tackled both um, as a layer one issue as a layer two issue and in a few different ways. Um, I do think a massive part of the story is about scalability. So, you know, you said beyond scalability, but <laughs> I kind of always end up circling back to that because I think games are are interesting in the sense that um, although some of the in-game assets are now becoming very valuable, so security remains kind of a, a, an important consideration, um, you know, speed is paramount and cost being low is also paramount because you can't have to spend $50 every time you do something in the game. That's outrageous, you know? And I think um, a lot of the people who accumulated ETH uh, or other crypto assets early, um, you know, have quite a lot. And so they're more willing to pay what would be an absolutely outrageous amount of money um, <laughs> to, to do something in that context than you would be in normal life. Like, for example, when I minted my YGG Guild badge, I think I ended up paying nearly $100. And if you think about that, that's like kind of outrageous. Um, and, you know, I, I would certainly not be willing to spend that much as a transaction cost for most things. But, um, you know, you're like, oh, it's for the development of the ecosystem. And so you just kind of go along with it. But, um, you know, if, if we really want to make this a mainstream thing, obviously, that's not sustainable. And so I think um, I think we're definitely moving in the right direction with all of this. It's just a matter of um it takes a little bit of time. These are really hard problems that are being solved for the first time. And so it's obvious that it's it's not going to be solved overnight. Well, so now we have one of our first like success cases of crypto, you know, in Axie and that, that growth is undeniable. And I think it's kind of like it's it's hard for people to say, as they said many times during the bear market, like crypto gaming is not a thing. It'll never take off. There's no business model behind this. None of it makes sense. Right. So now I think we want to shift the conversation to like why crypto gaming, the superpowers of crypto gaming. So I think many bankless listeners have played their fair share of video games, like David and myself included. And one of the things I think all of us will know about the video game is you can't own your own items in the game. You don't have sovereignty. So the centralized game maker essentially has license and access and uh, they own all of the actual items in the games. You can't lend them, you can't borrow against them, you can't like rent them out. You can't really do anything. You can't sell or trade them. 
very much unless it's exclusive to this like permissioned in-game economy. So let's talk about that as kind of a killer app for crypto gaming, number one. And maybe it's the most important one. I don't know what you'd say about that, but the ability to have asset-powered games where players own their items. What do you think it means to be an asset-powered game and for players to own their own items, Ariana? How important is that? Oh, I think that's critical. And I think it's it applies to games, but it also applies to crypto as a whole if we zoom out a little bit um, in the sense that the whole idea of what we're trying to do here in the space, in my mind, is to reclaim power, wealth, et cetera, from some of the platforms that have historically um, been rather extractive and distribute it back to the community, the people who are actually participating in these ecosystems. And I think the incredibly powerful thing about what's happening with this in crypto is this is the first time that we have a way to make the economics of it work. Historically, there was not an obvious way to incentivize people. And so you were kind of missing this critical component of how this might actually be operationalized. So the interesting thing in my mind is in games, um, you know, generally speaking, as you said, the, the financial upside went not at all to the user. So you would spend, you know, hours and hours and hours of your life building up um, you know, your your in-game persona or acquiring assets or, you know, doing all kinds of things. And you would really have nothing to show for it other than the fact that you had a great time. Um, so what what's happening here is you have the ability to also have a great time, but actually have some uh, participate in the upside of the community. And so I think that's super powerful because all of a sudden, you know, playing games doesn't just become fun, but it also becomes work. Um, and I think that's a really interesting construct where if you look at, for example, what YGG is enabling in um, the context of Axie and also other games, you know, people are now beginning to work in the metaverse. And so the fun is there, but there's also a kind of uh, broader financial and and work driven narrative and i think that's that's you know only enabled because crypto has become part of the experience this wouldn't have been possible before um and if you look at some of the games that are becoming popular now the fascinating part is they're not trying to keep their players captive you can cash out and that has historically not been the case um and I think the thinking was primarily that, well, if we let people cash out, then they'll, you know, leave the game without, um, you know, they'll, they'll cash out and then that'll be the end of it. They won't continue to play. We'll lose value. There'll be value leakage. Whereas in reality, what we're seeing now is that, um, sure, some value does leave, but the loyalty that is bred by allowing people to be, you know, uh, willing participants, but not captively held in the ecosystem is actually much greater. So while their take rate might be much smaller, um, their overall growth can be so much larger that they end up, you know, netting out ahead financially as well. So it's just a really interesting construct that I think, um, you know, it's almost like 
the new generation of games are not operating from a place of fear where, oh, we need to keep our players or else like, you know, everything, the feel, the wheels will fly off everything, but rather saying, okay, this is an open free market economy. You can participate if you would like, if you don't, you can leave and maybe you leave and then come back later, whatever. It's up to you. Um, and, you know, again, I think I think this idea that players would only stay if they were held hostage effectively is being proven not to be correct. Um, and I think over time, traditional gaming companies will have to. And I think, by the way, this is happening a lot more quickly than anyone would have suspected. Uh, I remember saying about six months that I six months ago that I thought uh, within two to three years, like 90 plus percent of gaming companies would be crypto gaming companies. I think we're, we're now talking on the order of months. Um, you know, if, if wow. I. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It, we, we obviously have a traditional games practice at the firm. And we also have a crypto native fund. And so, um, you know, we have a good lens on what's happening in both of those ecosystems. And the percentage of um, companies or new game studios or what have you that are coming in with crypto as a significant part of their strategy has gone from like zero a year ago to like, okay, not zero, but like very few to almost all. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see that transition. Um, and by the way, I think some of the, you know, the AAA studios, et cetera, some of the more entrenched entities in the gaming world are not going to move that quickly. Um, but you can't ignore the speed at which some of these things are growing and the passion of their communities. And so, you know, if I were there, I think I would be very much thinking about, okay, do we, do we buy a team? Do we, how do we reconfigure? But I think honestly, it's, it's very politically challenging inside some of these bigger organizations. Like how do you transition your whole business model? You know, it's, it's terrifying, but I think if you zoom out and look at what's happening in the ecosystem, it's going to become table stakes that people um, want more ownership in the games that they're playing. They want to participate in the upside. And it's also not just financial upside. It's it's uh, you want to feel like you're a part of the community and you actually have some form of ownership in it. Um, and that is, you know, has, has historically not been the case, but it's becoming more and more the de facto common situation in crypto. And so I think that's what's what's very exciting. I mean, just a quick side comment on what you said. I find it hilarious. You know, Andreessen's whole thing is like, you know, software eats the world, right? It's really, it's like crypto is starting to eat entire other industries, right? So like you talk about the crypto fund, maybe starting to chew off some of the, uh, the gaming fund within A16Z, right? Or, you know, at least melding the two ideas together. The same thing is happening with fintech. We were just talking to Kathy Wood from ARK Invest and she said, hey, there's more and more you know, cross-pollination between like what we're trying to do in the fintech side and crypto, because now crypto is DeFi. And so does fintech just become kind of DeFi? So it's like crypto is starting to eat the world. Um, 100%. A side quest there. Oh, yeah. no. It, I think about this every day. You know, we, um, I think as a firm, are constantly reevaluating what steps should we take to best serve the entrepreneurs um, in the community. And so, for us, you know, the whole firm transitioned to being an RIA in order to, at least in part, um, 
invest more freely in the crypto ecosystem. You know, we've we've taken a number of steps in um, that, frankly, are, um, I think, unusual or at least as far as I know, have never been done before in order to kind of stay current and be able to, as I said, serve the entrepreneurs as best as we can. And I think what we're seeing is exactly what you said, which is, you know, there used to be internet funds, right? If you look back at the dot com or whatever, I'm starting an internet fund. There's no such thing as an internet fund now. It's just called a fund, okay? Yeah, it's everything. Exactly. And so I think of crypto as very much the same in the sense that eventually it just becomes a piece of everything. It's it's a part of the stack. It's a way of um, enabling certain things, powering certain things. Um, it's It's not its own category. Um, And so, yeah, over time, I think obviously that a lot of things will need to be reconfigured. Um, But by the way, that is an incredible success case for crypto. Like this is what we've all been hoping for and working towards Mm -hmm. for the last however many years, because at the end of the day, like what could be considered more successful than becoming a part of everything? Um, So to me, that's that's definitely a a big success case over time every fund becomes a crypto fund that's the prediction we're making on bankless here <laughs> oh yeah no 100 percent. i yeah absolutely stand by that Ren and i definitely both got shocked when you updated your timeline from years to months with regards to crypto or gaming companies becoming asset powered gaming companies but i think upon further reflection it kind of makes a lot of sense because the world of gaming is very, very community driven. Like game studios make games for their communities. And when they make design choices that the communities don't like, the communities let them know. And they let them know, like, you don't want to piss off your gaming community. You want to make them very, very happy. Uh, And so like with regards to like the game theory of all of these crypto or gaming companies turning their games into asset powered games, it makes a lot of sense because of like, you know, if we don't, the community will might go elsewhere to where the assets actually are. And so I kind of want to zoom out and take a long-term historical perspective as to like sort of the models behind player acquisition with the worlds of gaming. Way back when you were playing a game, they would come in like the CDs with the crystal cassette cases. You had to spend like 20 to $30 to buy the game and then you get to play the game. And then that evolved into more of a, a freemium model where the game was free. It was something like a massive multiplayer online game and you would join the game for free and then you could buy your way into items, buy your way into skins. But the cost of player acquisition dropped so that the company could make more selling them in-game items, in-game assets, which again are not crypto assets. And now we've kind of gone even further where like the cost of a player joining the game went from 30 to $60 down to zero. And now it's going even negative with crypto asset powered games where like now the game is paying you, right? You are earning real assets in the game. Can you talk about that progression uh, and kind of how that relates to like the game theory behind all of these gaming companies turning into crypto gaming companies and how that relates to the dynamics of player acquisition? Yeah, I mean, I think the history that you just described is super fascinating. I remember reading uh, a few years ago for the first time, I think it was in Masters of Doom, which, by the way, I highly recommend. It's a great book um, about kind of 
in in the early days how you would have you know you would have a program that was written in the back of a magazine and you would literally have to type in the entire thing um, to download something or you uh, eventually could get a, a CD mailed to you and you would separately mail them a check and it was kind of the honor system where uh, you would you would either mail cash <laughs> or a check and then you would get a game in the mail and I was just like oh my god people used to be so good I still believe is, people wait, are good but <laughs> is, is Masters of Doom is that about like Doom. You know, mm-hmm. the, the first yeah, person yeah. shooters, the original. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. It's uh, John Carmack and uh, oh, I'm, he's a, the 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 other co-founder's name is escaping me. But yeah, anyways, it's a great book. And um, and it really describes kind of the early history of the development of video games. Um, and yeah, it's just a f- fascinating read. I remember I basically read the whole thing in 24 hours. I couldn't put it down. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the uh, the history of um games you know more recently it's been very driven by if you look at like mobile games or games um in in facebook even you know you really were dependent uh to a large extent on your ability to successfully monetize via well not monetize but really get downloads um, via ads. And so if you lost the ability to do that in a cost-effective way because Facebook changed their ad rules or something else happened, um, it became more competitive, et cetera, then that was, you know, that was a real issue for driving continued user growth. Um, and I think what's fascinating about some of the play-to-earn games, if you look at, you know, Axie, for example, the majority, something like 90 plus percent of their players successfully refer other people to the game. And so all of a sudden, you know, that is no longer and that's organic, by the way, because if you look at um, what that game and then, you know, on top of that, things like YGG and some of these um, sort of guild communities around providing scholarships uh, for playing this game empower um you want to tell people about it because all of a sudden it's improving your life in a meaningful way and so you want your friends and your neighbors to also be able to do the same and so i think that's really um turned things around games are no longer like something that you try to get your kid to stop doing but it's actually um you know a really positive force and so that to me is what's driving a lot of the organic growth um now obviously you know the 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 rate of that growth will fluctuate over time and you know if it were to continue at the pace it's going all all people in the world will be <laughs> uh playing crypto games in very short order but in general like the underlying um power of this new system is the fact that, you know, the users are able to participate in it. And I think the the wonderful thing about some of the guilds, YGG in particular, as kind of the leader in this, um, is that they're bringing down the financial barrier to entry um, so that players who are willing to um, invest the time in a game are able to to begin. And, um, you know, they're they're taking down whatever walled garden might otherwise exist. Um, and so I think they're providing a really valuable service for some of these game economies. 
not to mention for the players. I want to get into the economics side of crypto gaming, because where there is crypto, there is economics. But before we get there, and you've talked about this a, a couple times, but I want to just make this explicit here and talk about it more directly. How does the play to earn model, which is the crypto gaming model, change the structure of who actually captures the value in this new ecosystem? Sure. Well, you know, I think the best way to think about it is that it's similar to a regular world economy in some sense, um, in that there are different types of participants um, who perform different roles in this economy and, um, you know, are willing to contribute different things. In some cases, you know, if I am uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of money, but I have a lot of time, then I'll be willing to play a game, earn the token rewards, and then sell them in the open marketplace to somebody else. Now, I might sell them to I'll just use Axie as an example. I might sell them to a breeder. You know, if I've earned SLP, I might sell it to a breeder um, who will then use it to generate um, upside by, you know, breeding their Axies. Or, um, you know, I might uh, be a participant who is just willing to come in and pay to get started because, you know, I come from a wealthier place or whatnot. So, you know, different people are willing to contribute money or time or whatever. And so in that sense, it's very similar to a real economy. Um, if I have a lot of money and not a lot of time, I'll probably hire somebody to do things for me. Um, and, you know, I think I think that's perfectly normal and, and very reasonable and actually allows um, it's no different than, you know, say a mechanical Turk or something like that, where um, you're hiring people to perform work for you um, in some sense. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting because we generally don't think about game economies as parallels to real economies. But in reality, they very much are. And so um, as more and more of our lives become digital, we're spending more and more time in various sorts of digital worlds, um, there's no reason why work shouldn't also increasingly transition into the metaverse. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, this is so fascinating. We've got a lot of questions to talk about kind of the new workforce. But as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, so many people in the Philippines are actually like playing Axie as um, their job. And earning living wage, earning better wages than they could through other means of employment in their local economy in the Philippines, which is absolutely amazing. You know, crypto's always been talking about like banking the unbanked, right? Well, who knew it would actually come about through working inside of these metaverse, these gaming type economies. I think that the lens that you just shared, Ariana, is like so crucial for us to understand this because every game that's been created before crypto has been a closed economy right? What crypto enables is an open economy. And so like games have to think totally different. It's not really about revenue, is it? It's about GDP, which is an economic measure and an economic metric rather than kind of a business metric of revenue. And like the GDP that some of these open economies can throw out is absolutely amazing. But I still want to address maybe a, a criticism that some might make on this economic model. It's basically that it's like maybe a, a common criticism of crypto. Isn't this whole thing a Ponzi scheme? Isn't this a Ponzi game that we're playing here, right? Like 
what are you talking about? Where's the actual value being created, right? We create this game and then the players themselves value it and then the asset prices go up, but all we're creating are these assets and the way the economy, I guess, achieves any form of GDP or revenue is through asset inflation, right? So like, where is the actual value that's being created here? Is this kind of just a Ponzi game all the way down? No, it's definitely not. And I mean, I think the the key part of the equation is that it needs to remain fun to play these games because the success of the system is to some extent predicated on the willingness of some percentage of the members of the game community to put money in to buy new things. And by the way, this is not dissimilar to any other game where it's like, oh, I'm buying skins, I'm doing this, that, and the other thing. The way Fortnite continues to exist is that people are willing to put money in. Otherwise, it too would collapse. So, you know, it's not that this is uh, in any way a Ponzi scheme. It's that you need to make sure that over time there's enough desire to continue to play the game for fun reasons that people are willing to invest into it. Now, I think how that happens is continuing to build out interesting, creative game experiences. And I think the cool thing about some of these worlds, digital metaverses, is that you can have all different kinds of things that you can do in them. And so it's an infinitely rich canvas for building new games, new experiences, new whatever, um, in a way that, you know, continues to bring people in. And, you know, I would argue that, frankly, some of these economies are, are just as reasonable, if not more reasonable than you know, the U.S. economy in the sense that how do we have dollars? Well, we print more. And so how is that any different than, you know, having um, inflation in some of the game economies? It's really not. You have a lot of the same principles at work, which is what I just described, where some people are willing to put in money, some people are willing to put in labor, um, et cetera. And so I think, you know, obviously the the rate of growth is not going to always stay consistent. Like there will be periods of sort of stabilization. But again, like look at the real economy. Sometimes there's periods of crazy growth and sometimes it sort of, you know, muddles along for a little bit. So, um, you know, in, in my mind, this is definitely not um, not a an unreasonable paradigm for an economy. Um, now, granted, I, I certainly think that the failure mode for a lot of these worlds is screwing up the economic mechanics. And so I think that um, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges for Axie and some of the other metaverse type um, games or even just games in general, because, you know, there is real risk that if you fiddle with some of the uh, economic principles, you could end up causing some unanticipated um, and maybe adverse economic effects in the game economies, which, by the way, is also the same as the real economy. Um, so, you know, it's it's a challenge, but it's definitely not insurmountable. And so I think the teams that are, are building the most in this space are really um, pushing forward the thinking and 
um, what we know about how some of these economies work. And by the way, if you look at who many of these teams hire, they're literally real economists. Like, um, no, I'm serious. Wow. Like, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of um, sort of game economy people studied economics um, and it makes sense, right? Some of these economies are so complex that you really have um, a, a very close mapping to what you would see in kind of the real world economics. So um, it's, it's I think it's got to be way more fun. It's yeah, got to yeah, be way more sure, fun than sure. going and becoming a central banker, right? With your <laughs> economics degree. <laughs> totally. Exactly. It's like the, the fun ones go become game economists. Yeah. Uh, no, no offense to anyone who's a real economist, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, they're all real economists, right? Yeah, uh, you totally. know, what you were just Real saying. world economists, let's call it that. Yeah. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you are getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. So we were talking about kind of the, the superpowers of crypto gaming, and we've established two. You know, the first is players own the items, asset-powered games you can have now. Second, this play-to-earn movement. And you just went through the history of we've seen play-to-buy, then play-to-win in gaming, and now we're at kind of play-to-earn. So let's dig more into this, I guess, third superpower that we're kind of unlocking, which is employment via crypto gaming. You've mentioned YGG a few times, which as I understand is kind of a an employment guild for crypto gaming. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that, but just like high level. So Ariana, uh, not a day goes by where I don't receive, because we've done podcasts on Axie. We've done like written stuff on Axie. 
Um, and so I get a DM from people saying, hey, take a look at my Axie resume. I'd love to go work for you, right? I'm like, Scholarship me is kind of, a, I think, a term that's used. And um, I'm not deep in the Axie world myself, so I don't know what exactly they're talking about. But I can see there's a ton of, these are essentially job applications, right? Um, yeah. To come work for the Axie economy and for uh, an individual to sponsor these scholarships and these workers in the Axie economy, right? So can we talk about this move to employment in crypto gaming? Like for people who aren't in to this right now, don't know what's going on, what is actually going on with crypto gaming? What is YGG doing in this space? Yeah, maybe it'd be helpful for me to kind of take a step back and describe a little bit of the history of how we got here. So um, in terms of the the YGG story, um, a gaming entrepreneur in the Philippines, Gabby Dizun, um, who has been kind of a, a leader in the games community in Southeast Asia for a number of years, um, saw that during the um, pandemic, so many people had lost their jobs. Um, and he realized that given Axie's model, um, he could loan out his Axies to other people who could then play, um, play them and earn uh, SLP tokens, which could then be converted into local currency. And so he started doing this, um, then teamed up with Beryl Lee, who is his co-founder, um, together with their third co-founder, who is anonymous owl of moistness. Um, let me tell you that 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 was an exciting background check when we ran that. Um, but <laughs> but uh, there is the best. Oh, I know. I love it. The, the best. I, I encourage everyone to go check out on our blog the YGG funding announcement because it is literally my favorite photo that we've ever posted of a team because it's Beryl and Gabby and a stuffed animal of an owl. Very cute. Um, anyway, so... And Ariana, I think we haven't actually named YGG, which is Yield Guild Games. That's uh, and, right. And like, yeah, we all know YGG on the call, but like it might be useful to actually imply what this thing actually is. Yes, exactly. So um, yeah, so basically YGG, as I was saying, emerged out of this um, lending of in-game assets to other people motion. So Gabby would basically, um, you know, Gabby and then later the YGG team would evaluate a person um, on their ability to kind of play the game successfully and then loan out these assets so that the person could play the game with them. Because, for example, in the case of Axie, which is kind of where they started, you need to have a team of three Axies at least in order to start playing. Um, and the cost can actually be fairly prohibitive. Like now you'd have to spend, this was not the case at the time, but even then, you know, it was it was a substantial amount of money for many people. Um, now you'd have to spend uh, well over $1,000 to put together like a starting team kind of situation. Um, and so, you know, by doing so, by lending out these in-game assets, they enabled a whole class of people who would not otherwise have been able to start to play the game to do so. Um, and so they take a small cut of the earnings of their scholars and the rest is kept by the scholars. Um, and the cool thing is that this has been so successful that now many of the people who started out as scholars are actually now also participating and giving their own scholarships to other people because they've been able to buy their own assets and, and continue to play the game with their axes. So um, it's super cool. Um, the exciting thing is, you know, it's enabled people to, in many cases, make it through the pandemic. I mean, there are literally... Wow. Yeah. I mean, so many people who'd lost their jobs um, 
literally credit YGG with getting them through. And even more broadly, you know, many of the folks who have started playing are now making many multiples of what they were um, in their jobs previously. So it's it's really, I mean, the stories are just so heartwarming. Um, it, they're doing such incredible things for their communities. And, you know, I think they're they're just at the beginning of their stories. I mean, right now, a lot of the activity is concentrated in the Philippines, but they, they've really started a movement that is spreading kind of across the world. And so I'm super excited about where they're heading. And it's it's just such a clear tangible way in which crypto is improving people's lives. You know, we've been talking about, oh, crypto is going to make everyone's lives better. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the the pushback from people outside of crypto is like, OK, like, give me an example. And in my mind, there are really no better examples than what's happening in this in this area. Um, so, you know, so we're thrilled to be involved. And, and uh, I'm super excited to kind of see how they expand. At this point, they're, you know, they're getting... Um, they're really hitting their stride in terms of being able to scale the model. And I think the other piece that's very important is that a lot of what's happening here is becoming a beachhead for providing access to other kinds of financial services from people who have not historically been served in the sense that in many cases, a person's crypto wallet that they're using you know, to earn their tokens um, as they play these games is the first financial service contact that they've ever had. Um, it's their first bank. Exactly. And so it's incredibly cool because then you have the ability for other kinds of financial products to become relevant and and to, you know, give access to folks who haven't really had access to other kinds of financial services. And so, um, you know, it, it starts with a game, but then it becomes way more than that. And I think that's what's really cool. Ariana, I think I found the picture you were referencing. Is this it? There it is. Is this them? How good is that picture? Come so we've got the, the three founders, including the owl of moistness here. <laughs> Did I get that right? You the got moist it. owl. You got it. That's right. <laughs> this is an official A16 post, I think. You guys put this in. So that had to be a lot of fun to explain to uh, the compliance team and investors and everybody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Um you just kind of have to roll with the punches in crypto. I love it. I mean, I, I think this kind of stuff to me is just like the essence of the space and um, why I say that I'll never be able to do anything else in my life, because what am I going to do? Like sell bonds after this? Come on now. You no, know, everything just... <laughs> else is boring after exactly. crypto. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I love the space. I think it's just there's so much creativity and, and so much. I think one thing I love is that Crypto tends not to take itself too seriously in some respects. And I think that allows for a lot of creativity and innovation that um, would be difficult in other spaces where people are more concerned about being wrong and stuff. And I think the fact that everything is open and composable and you can just kind of start building stuff without needing to make a grand production about it or get a lot of, uh, you know, get some sort of um, access or permissions or whatever, um, from a centralized gatekeeper is one of the things that allows people to be so original and just to build things in a way that's, um, that's fast and iterative. Um, and I think that ends up being a really positive driver for the speed of innovation in the space. 
Ariana, one concern I have with this whole, um, if there is the viability of employment by these individuals, that means there's opportunity. That's why these individuals are there. And I'm worried that we might watch the same path of like working for an in-game economy, working for something like Yield Guild, as we saw with the whole yield farming phenomenon in 2020, where it started off very democratized and everyone had like more or less equal opportunity and then over time it could became more and more consolidated into the hands of a few like well well capitalized yield farmers who we kind of labeled as liquidity locusts as they had no alignment they just went from farm to farm you know sucked it dry and moved on and we know that there's this world of bots in the world of web2 for engagement on platforms like Instagram Twitter Facebook and i'm worried that like we might be able to see that same bot farming operations might be applied to any sort of in-game economy that comes out of the cryptosphere. Is this a worry that you have as well? Well, I think it's definitely top of mind for the folks who are building these games and these experiences to make sure that they're very difficult to game. Um, and so I think part of that will just be solved through technology by continuing to make changes and and add enough complexity whereby it's very difficult to actually sort of be extractive only and and not be a solid participant in the community. I think the other piece of it is that now that some of these models have been shown to work, people will be more willing to rebuild something similar that is not problematic or that allows some of these um, issues to be solved. So if a particular game economy is no longer serving its users, they'll just leave. And that's the whole point of what I was saying earlier. You know, these are at will participation economies. And so, um, you know, I think the community will be very willing to say, hey, you know, this isn't working for us. We're going to go somewhere else. Um, and so I think there's a pretty strong incentive to make sure that um, things are, are kept in a state whereby everyone is benefiting. Um, and granted, you know, over time, some folks might benefit more or some classes of folks might benefit more or less. And the game teams, I think, will will tweak their models in order to make sure that things continue to work. So, yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely something to be mindful of. But um, I think it's a very solvable problem and, and we'll continue to work on it over the next few years. But I don't think it's any reason to stay away from the space or anything like that. I think one reason why it's easy to have such strong conviction about this coming world of crypto gaming is that we've seen early premonitions of it before. Guilds in World of Warcraft were people in chat rooms that would go on raids together uh, so that they could you know, defeat the boss and come out with a cool shiny new in-game object. And now Guild Guild literally calls itself a guild, but we also might call these things DAOs. Uh, so how do you see the intersection of DAOs and crypto gaming blossoming as this world expands? Oh, boy. Um, the, the structure gets really complicated really fast, because if you look at YGG, it's it's a DAO of DAOs, which mm. like even for me, who spends a lot of my time thinking about both DAOs and games starts to sort of bend your mind. Um, so maybe it would be helpful to take a step back and and. Um, frame DAOs first in the sense that 
DAOs, in my mind, are really organizational units, similar to the LLC or the C-Corp, which people tend to be a lot more familiar with. And they're organizational units that generally have a financial component. So there's a wallet or, or something. And then a community that organizes around that to make shared decisions about what to do. And that might be buy an NFT or it might be, you know, make a different... Um, take a different action of some kind. But in general, it's a way for people to organize around a shared objective um, and generally have some shared control over assets of some sort, which might be ETH or it might be, um, you know, in-game assets or it might be NFTs or it might be whatever else. Um, and so it, it seems very natural to me that DAOs would map very well, as you said, to kind of these communities of people in gaming, because sometimes, especially, by the way, as costs have risen dramatically around some of these um, in-game items, you know, you might want to own a Mystic Axie, but you don't necessarily want to own it on your own. And so you might pool together your assets with other gamers and, and purchase one, for example. Um, in the case of YGG, um, you know, they really have a broad base of participation from members of their community. And so I think a DAO is a very natural fit for what they want to do. Um, so I think eventually most organization that happens on the internet will happen through DAOs. It's kind of, I think of it as like a crypto native uh, LLC structure kind of thing. And so it's interesting now because we're seeing DAOs crop up in all different uh, at areas and people say, oh, well, you know, DAOs are X. And it's really like you can't, I mean, it's like saying companies are X. It's really broad. You, you know, it's more of a tool and a structure that allows you to do something rather than a category unto itself. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just seeing that flourish now. Things are, are being um, developed that use DAOs at their core in a whole host of different categories. So, um, you know, games is one such category, and I think it's a very natural fit, but I think we're going to continue to see much more expansion from there. Let's talk about broader cultural issues, because if you're right on this, Ariana, I think this could I'm have a significant... Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, so we know this is going to happen then. I, I shouldn't even uh, you know, phrase that as if you're right. When you're right, Ariana, Perfect. about crypto changing things... Um, it's going to have an impact on culture, right? A major impact on culture. So when I was a kid, I played a lot of video games. Um, my mom didn't like it so much. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if I was grounded, I'd get grounded from video games. David was sharing a story with me before this podcast as we were talking about it. And uh, David, your mom used to hide the power cord from you, right? Yep. <laughs> from your yeah, computer. she would yoink my power cord to my computer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there, there's like Surely this Surely you this must impression. have had a backup. I would have had a, a <laughs> I think that's of... <laughs> literally the next step in the story. She didn't know I had a backup. Does mom know this? <laughs> no, Does I, mom I have listen? told her this story, yeah. <laughs> all right, all now, right. hopefully you're old out. enough that you can manage your own power cords. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, but like, there's this impression that, um, if people are immersed in video games all day, right? Like, um, it's not real work. I mean, how do you get paid real work for doing the games? Video games are sort of a, a waste of time is the impression. In fact, it, just in the recent news, super fascinating to me, um, China has cracked down on video games. They did this in 2019. Now they're upping the crackdown. And so China is now 
barred online games for anyone under the age of 18, if you're a Chinese citizen, from playing on weekends and limited their play to just three hours on most weekends. You can't play during weekdays. You only get three hours on the weekend. What's interesting to me is like, I feel like I learned so much about crypto just from playing video games. Yeah. Like in my childhood, right? Whether it's just like something simple like Mario collecting coins, right? That's like, what is crypto? We're just collecting coins, aren't we? Um, or whether it's something like, you know, a Diablo where you're leveling up and, you know, you've got characters or something like civilization, all of these things taught me how to prepare myself for a more virtual future. So I guess my question is, do you think that, um, like even China's action, for example, in barring you know people under 18 from playing games, is this essentially like barring people from a, a super important component of the future economy? Are there more benefits that we realize from gaming in general than the critics realize? What's your take here? Oh, I definitely think if I were to sit down and, you know, I just know this anecdotally, but if I were to actually sit down and, you know, ask all the smartest people I know, um, and by the way, most successful people I know, whether they played games, um, the answer would almost unquestionably be yes in nearly all cases. And I think um, I know this because I've had many conversations to this effect um, that almost all of them would say that they learned so much about strategy, about collaboration, about how to um achieve a given objective, given some set of constraints, um, you know, from games. So I actually think it's a super important tool for development. Um, so I definitely don't agree with with China's decision to do that. Um, I also think it's incredibly difficult to enforce. So very curious to see how that goes. Um, there's a lot of things China does I don't agree with. But anyways, um, <laughs> I, I think the uh, the main issue is just that um, well, one interesting thing to note is that now it's no longer you actually can have your work be a game. So that's a fascinating development because, you know, I think many parents, if they had seen their kid actually like bringing home real money um, from playing a game would have had a different perspective. Um, and I think it's quite possible that, you know, down the road there becomes a larger universe of people who play games professionally. Um, and then, you know, maybe that's 20% of the population or 20% of the, the game population. And then 80% of players are just sort of more amateur, do it for fun. Um, and so they're the ones who are, are putting in more money than what they're taking out. And so that's kind of how these economies end up, up growing. But from my perspective, you know, the, the new model of play to earn definitely kind of flips this idea that games are a waste of time a little bit on its head. Um, but I don't think they were a waste of time to begin with. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder in that sense. But from my perspective, it's very obvious that there are tangible learning and development benefits that come from games. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that games were ever the the one to demonize to begin with. Hear that, mom? Ariana is never wrong. And she says <laughs> that games <laughs> were useful the entire time I was playing them as a youth. There you go. <laughs>
And the world of gaming has already just a massive cultural force already, like before we integrate a bunch of like financial components into it. And you know, esports, especially in the last five, 10 years, has absolutely exploded onto the scene and, you know, drawn more attention and more eyeballs than any American sport that we have here. Or I think even soccer. I don't know. You might have to fact check me on that one. But still, gaming was already a cultural revolution in of itself. And now we have a revolution in gaming coming on with crypto gaming. So, Ariana, how do you see esports as like a subset of the whole gaming world being changed due to adding like a financial layer to these games? Yeah, you know, um, I think esports are interesting because there are definitely a lot of the same um, principles at work as you see in other kinds of of crypto gaming. Um, I'm starting to see a little bit happening at the intersection of crypto and esports, but I don't think it's quite hit its stride to the extent of what we've seen in in other parts of crypto games. So, um, you know, my lens on it is it's something I'm watching closely. I literally have a a book on esports somewhere around um, that uh, is on my reading list for the weekend. But I don't think it's yet um, kind of reached its aha moment to the extent that other parts of the ecosystem have. But, um, you know, if there's any people building really exciting stuff out there, we're, we're super excited to take a look. So let me know. Well, I'm curious, just we're talking about kind of, you know, esports is a major force right now, but you mentioned earlier that major gaming studios would actually enter into crypto. I'm curious if you've got some inkling on how they might enter, how that might evolve. So the epics of the world, the blizzards, the Activisions of the world, um, are they having strategy meetings right now and being like, hey, guys, what's our crypto plan? Because we really need one. And how do you think they'll enter in what ways? So they are um, having those meetings. Um, now, what comes of them, I think, is still an ongoing question. Um, there's a few options for them. And I think, by the way, this is similar to what we've seen whenever there's been a new paradigm shift in technology, a technology subsector on the whole, um, you know, they have the ability to build something themselves or to buy it or to partner with somebody else. And so um, as far as I know, most of the current efforts are focused on the either partnering or maybe on the buying, but we haven't really seen much of that happening yet. Um, But as I was saying earlier, I think it's a very... Uh, politically challenging thing to propose or orchestrate in some of these larger organizations. Because when you have kind of the the golden goose, um, it's very difficult to want to say, oh, hey, you know how we've made like billions of dollars to date? We're just going to not do that anymore. And we're going to try this crazy new thing. That's a very challenging um, proposition from sort of an organizational politics perspective. And so... I think in many cases, um, you know, this this goes back to the innovator's dilemma. Um, In many cases, this won't be acted upon until there's a real existential threat. Um, At that point, it might end up being too late for some of these organizations. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that they've necessarily felt the full pressure of what's to come yet. Um, But as users start to see that there is a new option, that there is a world in which they can be rewarded and actually own the items that they've built up or acquired or whatever in these games, 
they will demand the same um, in more traditional games. And so at that point, it's like, well, if you don't want your users to leave, then you'll probably have to start listening to what they want. And so in my mind, like over time, there'll be a, more and more of a shift towards users having certain expectations and makers of games being kind of forced to, you know, cater to them because otherwise users will leave. Um, and so I think that we're just kind of at the beginning of that transition period, but I do think it's happening. I want to switch gears here, but also maybe not actually. How does this conversation fit into what we're all trying to figure out is the metaverse? How is this relevant to whatever the metaverse is? Well, um, you know, I think at its core, the metaverse is a virtual world of some sort. So um, most crypto games are virtual worlds of some sort. And there's generally you know, people are saying, oh, what will the metaverse look like? I think the great thing about the metaverse is that there doesn't need to be just one. Um, and so people can exist in multiple virtual worlds that serve them well for a particular reason. Um, but they don't have to choose one and commit exclusively to that. So you can be a participant of multiple metaverses um, and that's fine. That's great. So I think what we're going to see in terms of development of these categories is there's going to be different ones organized in different ways around different shared purposes with different communities. Um, and users or, you know, people will be able to flow between them based on what they want at a particular time or, um, you know, their preferences. And I think that's a super powerful concept because, you know, in a world in which you can't necessarily move to a different country because, you know, there are border controls or whatever else, um, we have the ability to create a much more open set of digital worlds powered by the Internet and crypto. Um, and I think that's sort of the direction that we're heading. Um, so, yeah, I, we're spending a lot of time in that category. I'm super excited to see what people come up with. You know, I think as investors, our job is not necessarily to be the creative ones, but just to find and support the most creative entrepreneurs across the space. And we're seeing some really interesting stuff in that area. Um, and yeah, it overlaps with gaming in various ways. You might have a game that becomes very successful and then becomes a whole virtual world. And then there are other games in that virtual world. Or you might have someone who creates kind of an open-ended virtual canvas where you can create different games from the get-go um, and allows developers to come in and build whatever, you know, they might be interested in doing, like in the case of Sandbox, for example. So, um, you know, there's there's many different ways that you can approach it. And I think multiple universes will always be under development at the same time. And so people have the ability to kind of pick and choose what is the best fit for them. What do you think about this weird thing that we've seen recently with like loot? Where you actually you start with a an asset and then that gets sold, that gets some you know social traction, and then the idea is like a metaverse is built on top of loot. So I could bring my loot into like an Axie or a World of Warcraft or a Diablo. Do you think that has staying power or that model, or do you think we kind of jump the shark there and it's a little bit overhyped? I think it's a fascinating experiment in the sense that it's taking the role of the community, which I think has been a very important part of the crypto story to its like 
furthest logical extension, whereby you are just providing a literal list of things and giving people effectively free license to go build experiences around it. And that's a really interesting point because it means that the community is not just, you know, a voyeur or sort of a passive participant. It's like they literally have to do everything. Um, <laughs> but it's it's incredible to see how creative and willing to pick up the mantle people have been already in just a couple of weeks since loot was dropped. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if loot is going to end up being like a big thing in, in five years time, but I think it's the first experiment of its kind. And so far I've been really impressed with kind of how, um, excited and and again just really creative people in the community have been let's talk about uh how this fits into the broader i guess crypto economy than ariana so we've talked about like these items these nfts many of these get um, registered on a self-sovereign property rights system like something like an ethereum i think part of the reason we're here today is uh you tweeted this out can we all agree eth is money yet and then uh bankless a Twitter jokingly replied, you realize tweeting this gives you an auto invite to the Bankless <laughs> podcast. In reality, we've wanted to have you on for a while, Ariana, and discuss these things. Um, but we are definitely proponents of, of that idea that um, ETH is becoming monetized through NFTs, through the metaverse. It's becoming an important economic system. Can you talk about how you see the role of uh, crypto systems like Ethereum fitting into this and what the effect on something like ETH the asset might be. Yeah, in terms of context for my tweet, which was definitely like kind of tongue in cheek, um, I think historically, if you go back to kind of the early days of crypto when it was really mostly a Bitcoin centric community, um, a lot of the proponents of Bitcoin by the way, I'm very pro Bitcoin, still have my original coins, generally never, you know, so it's it's not at all um, a dig on that. But I think a lot of the initial logic has been proven wrong. And what I mean by that is I can't tell you how many conversations I had with folks who were like, well, Bitcoin has a cap supply and therefore it's going to continue going up in price. And will become kind of the ecosystem uh, cornerstone. ETH doesn't have a cap supply, and therefore it's going to be worthless. And if you look at what has happened, obviously that's not the case. And so I'm sure that um, if there's any Bitcoin maxis listening, they would argue with me that we haven't reached the end of the story yet, and therefore I'm probably still going to be wrong <laughs> in 10 years. But, you know, I, I think most of us um, can agree that, you know, the the richness of developers and projects and sort of um, creativity and innovation that has been built around Ethereum as a platform is staggering. And I think that's what's driving um, value capture on this chain. So in my mind, if you have something that you can use to buy all kinds of things and interact with different protocols in the Ethereum community, and that's ETH, like 
that is serving as a form of money. At its most basic, it's an asset that you can trade freely for other kinds of goods and services in a given ecosystem. And, you know, ETH definitely meets that uh, description as far as I'm concerned. So I was kind of tweeted as a joke. But what I really meant was that, like, it's obvious that despite in the abstract, it's seeming like Bitcoin's... um, you know, characteristics as a financial asset might lead to um, better outcomes. In reality, what's happened is that all of the brilliant development that's happening around Ethereum is actually really driving that sub-economy. And so from my perspective, it's incredibly exciting to see kind of this whole ecosystem continue to develop. And so I think ETH will be a critical currency, not the only one, but I think a critical currency of kind of the metaverse. And so if you can become like the currency of the metaverse, like that's fucking huge. So um, to me, that's like a really very big uh, market. And so I'm excited to kind of see things continue to move in that direction. ETH as metaverse money is a really interesting concept that we've only started to explore, I think, and it's going to be increasingly an interesting narrative to watch. Um, but but is this really what we're doing here, Ariana? So you said earlier that, like, what's the TAM? What's the total addressable market for crypto gaming? And you're like, seven to eight billion people, everybody, right? Um, is that what's going to happen? Is basically everyone is going to be drawn to crypto in one way or another, maybe through through crypto uh, gaming, for instance, this could be a big on-ramp for a lot of people. And then are they just naturally going to fall down the rabbit hole of all of the rest? Well, now I have my first you know, crypto bank account, which is uh, an address, uh, and I have a private key, and I have a wallet that works, and now I may as well do my banking in DeFi. And oh, as far as storing my wealth, well, I may as well buy something like Bitcoin or Ether to, to store the wealth because now I'm interacting with this economy. Is this a huge catalyst for adoption for uh, the rest of crypto? What's your take there? Absolutely. I mean, it's already happening. And the thing is, like, as we were discussing, crypto is becoming all the things. And so, you know, it's like, do users want access to the new version of all goods and services in addition to kind of these new digital worlds that we're talking about? And the answer is yes. So if you're coming in, as we said, from a game, and then all of a sudden you have access to credit and you have, uh, you know, your your new version of a bank account, which is actually controlled by you. You have all of these different um, experiences at your fingertips. Like, yeah, everyone wants that. And so it's it's not to say that it's going to happen tomorrow or that this is going to um, immediately supplant all the existing versions of everything. But as I was saying, like crypto is becoming increasingly a part of the stack of more and more technology goods and services. And so it's natural that, you know, as people come onto the internet and they start to interact with crypto in certain contexts, they then percolate out into others. Um, And I think that's an incredibly, you know, exciting proposition. 
Absolutely. Well, Ariana, it has been an absolute pleasure to explore crypto gaming with you. Pretty soon, we'll just drop the prefix and just call it gaming because crypto is going to become all the things. Want to maybe close with this last question for you, and that's this. Um, what's coming next in crypto gaming? So Axie had this massive year, surprising, caught many by surprise. Do you have any thoughts on what the next big thing in this subsector of crypto might be? Well, you know, we've touched on the metaverse, but I think that's really the next frontier. As we've said, we've seen some of these games start to gain a lot of traction in a particular context. But what we haven't yet fully seen is like the development of full-fledged virtual worlds that you can do a lot of different things in. And so I think that is really um, the next frontier and one of the areas that has the most promise uh, because the more rich we can make these virtual worlds, the more time people are going to want to spend in them and the more ways there will be for people to interact with them. And so I think that's sort of the, the next frontier for what's happening in games. The next frontier is building out the metaverse. Ariana Simpson, thank you so much for joining us on Bankless today. Thank you so much. Bankless listeners, some action items for you. Our advice is that you dig in here. Go play some crypto games. Axie Infinity is one we talked about, Gods Unchained. Dig into loot and what's going on there. We have a bunch of resources for you in Bankless. And pay attention to those economies over time. They are growing. If you have an analyst's mind, you can look at all of the metrics of growth we also cover this extensively in a bankless newsletter we call Metaversal, which covers virtual worlds, NFTs, and the metaverse. So make sure you hit subscribe on that as well. Risks and disclaimers, as always, none of this has been financial advice. ETH is risky. DeFi is risky. Bitcoin is risky. The metaverse is really risky as we build this thing out. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on the bankless journey.